Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, it's good to be here this morning, and it's good to, to be with you in this context. This is a little bit of a, a new context for us. Normally, I'm about 10 feet over there strumming a guitar, so it's a little different to be standing here. When I came in this morning, I saw Ted Paul, and I told him that as I've been preparing for this and after Jesse asked me to do this a few weeks ago, the one thing you quickly come to realize is the gravity of the responsibility that you have when you step into this pulpit. And it makes me extremely grateful for the men who do this on a regular basis, be that Jesse or be that our elders who filled in during the Advent season and over the last year and a half of this transition. So it's a very, uh, it's a very good thing to, to be blessed by them and to be thankful uh, for what they've done for us. So given that I'm a guest speaker, there's probably two questions that are running through your mind. First, is this going to be any good? And number two, how long is he going to go? And let me tell you that I am as interested in the answers to those questions as you all are. So what we're going to do is we're going to read the passage, then we'll pray, and then we'll see what God has for us this morning. So we're going to read John 2, and I'm going to actually pick up at 12 through 22. It's page 887 in the Red Bibles if you have one of those. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and ask that as we walk through this passage, we would come to understand how such an interesting event like this fits into your plan of redemption and shows us more about who you are. Use this time to draw us closer to one another as a body and to draw us closer to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. In the fall of 1970, Paul and Alberta Anderson decided that after a long and successful career as an engineer, it was time to retire to move from their house in the Minneapolis area and retreat up to the north woods of Wisconsin to find a lake home. They decided on Half Moon Lake, just outside the tiny town of Milltown, Wisconsin. It was a lake that my grandfather would boast was the cleanest for miles around. They found the perfect little house at the end of a road. It was a two-bedroom cottage with a bunkhouse. It had houses on one side and marshland on the other. They built a dock, painted red, with a 
fishing boat on one side of it and a pontoon boat on the other. Family reunions were held there. Hundreds of turtles were captured there. And a few raccoons met their demise at the end of a 22 long rifle there. My parents honeymooned there. And every summer as kids, we would spend two weeks up there playing in the water, but more importantly, just being with my grandparents. As a child, I can remember the sound of the gravel road under the tires as we would get close to their house. I can remember my grandmother sometimes standing out on the steps up to the front door. I remember that as you would walk through the front door, there was a cabinet of keys that had to be in exactly the right place because my grandfather was going blind, which always made me question why a blind man needs to know where the keys to the cars are. I remember my grandfather's special audio Bible that sat on the table next to his chair. I can smell the smell of cinnamon bread cooking in my grandmother's kitchen. I can recall so many memories, and I have so many vivid details of that. It was their house. We would drive 385 miles up there, but we didn't go to see their house. We would go to see them. There was a longing to be there. There was a longing to be with them. And when you walked through the front door, you knew that Paul and Alberta Anderson lived in that home. So today we're going to look at another longing. As we started through John, Jesse's been saying that Jesus changes everything. Last week we looked at Jesus changing our longing, and we're going to use that theme again this week. But before we jump into the passage, let's take a quick look back at what happened last week. Last week, we looked at the story of Jesus changing water into wine. And while everybody at that wedding had that on their mind, Jesus had another wedding in his mind, a wedding that would have a better wine that would be his own blood, and a wedding with a better bride that would be his church. And now at the end of this first week of ministry, we we're going to watch this unique interaction unfold. So as we unpack the story of the temple, we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at the purging of the temple. Second, we're going to look at the purpose of the temple. And third, we're going to look at the picture of the temple. So the story begins with Jesus making the 80-mile trek from Capernaum down to Jerusalem. Now, during Passover, all of Israel would make the trip from their hometowns into Jerusalem to give their sacrifices, give their offerings, and celebrate the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So with all of Israel in Jerusalem, we know that there are a lot of people there. So as part of Passover, animal sacrifices were required. So you would raise an animal, bring it to Jerusalem, and you would offer the sacrifice. Not such a big deal if you live in the suburbs of Jerusalem to bring an animal there, but if you lived 100 miles away, bringing an ox, yes, Brian Sell knows that it's hard enough to get a cow to go from a barn into a trailer, let alone go from 100 miles away. It's too much risk. The animal could get sick, the animal could get injured. So instead what people would do is they would find which animal was going to be their sacrificial animal, they would sell it in their hometown, take their money, take it to Jerusalem, and they would buy a sacrificial animal there. So basically, that's why we see the people selling animals in the passage. There's a second requirement at Passover, which was that they had to give a half-shekel offering to the temple. And this had to be in a very specific currency, which was the half-shekel of Tyre. There were significantly many more currencies in first-century Israel than what we have here today. 
Anywhere in the States, we can take our U.S. dollar and we can pay for anything. But in first century Israel, there were many more currencies. So what people would do is they needed to bring their currency, get it to these money changers who were basically a currency exchange, break down their currencies, and then also get it into the right denomination and the right size. So they basically acted like a dual function of a currency exchange and then also breaking down change. So as Jesus enters the temple courts, he finds these two groups of people, people selling animals for sacrifice and people making change and doing the currency exchange. And what does Jesus do? Jesus goes berserk. He makes a whip and starts driving people and animals out. I mean, think about it. There would be animals running by. People don't know what's going on. There's money flying through the air. This is the largest festival in Jerusalem. It's the biggest feast in the biggest city of the country. What is our biggest feast? Thanksgiving. What is our biggest city? New York. So imagine at Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, if somebody just starts going around and creating chaos. Snoopy's flying down Fifth Avenue, the tuba players are on the run trying to get away, there would be pandemonium. Now just picture yourself as one of his disciples. Here, just about a week ago, you said, I'm going to follow this man. And now you're watching this guy walk into the height of the cultural center and go into chaos. And I would definitely be questioning what was going on. I said Jesus went berserk, but that's not an entirely true statement. Because to be berserk means to be out of control with anger or excitement. And there was nothing about Jesus that was out of control. This was premeditated. Jesus had been fulfilling the law and traveling to Israel for Passover every year of his life. There was nothing new that he would have seen on this trip. The market for the oxen would have been there every year. The money changers would have been there every year. He had seen this year after year after year. Jesus knew exactly when he walked into the temple what he would find, and he knew exactly when he walked into the temple what his response would be. John says, Jesus said to them, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. John says that the disciples remembered the scripture that zeal for your house will consume me. And that's the issue that's at stake here. So some people think that there may have been some sort of lucrative deal set up between the animal sellers and the currency exchangers with the high priests. And that when you have a captive audience, a captive market, you have a monopoly and that you can charge exorbitant prices because there's nowhere else for them to go. So whether that was going on or whether it was a perfectly fine market, Jesus clears it out of the temple. So as an engineer, I'm, I'm not exactly known for my verbal prowess, and at times I use words that I don't fully know the meanings to. So if you ever do that in a public place, where it's a very public setting and a lot of people can hear you, you need to be sure that you don't slip up. And I've said some things that wouldn't be appropriate for me to say here because I didn't understand what the meaning was. But as I've gotten older, one of the things I've found is that I enjoy now kind of understanding how we get to a word and how a word derived its use for today. So let's take the word profane. If I say the word profanity, the first word that comes to your mind is probably some type of swear word or cuss word or that type of word. But profane is from the Latin word profanum. So you have the prefix pro, and you have the root word phantom. Pro meaning before, or in this case, outside. 
and phanum meaning temple. So it literally means that which is outside the temple. So it's just anything that's non-sacred. So back to the market. There's nothing wrong with the market in and of itself. But they are not holy. They are not sacred. They are common. Jesus clears out the temple because they had taken that which was sacred and infiltrated it with, with that which was common. They had profaned the house of God. But why does Jesus really do it? I mean, does he really think that anything's going to change, like the high priests are suddenly going to confess their wrongdoing and that the market would vanish and that all these people would leave? I think to answer the question of why Jesus purged the temple, we have to look at the purpose of the temple. So if you can indulge me for a few minutes, we're going to go back and look from creation all the way until John 2 when we see Jesus entering the temple. So let's start at creation. God creates Adam. God creates Eve. Genesis 3 says that Adam and Eve knew the sound of God's footsteps in the garden. I mean, just imagine that, knowing the sound of God's footsteps walking by you. God dwelt among man. But then the fall. God kicks man out of the garden, and man is separated from God's presence. Then we see Noah, Abraham, Jacob, all the way up through Moses. And God isn't present with them in some sort of visible sense, but he comes to individuals occasionally as he begins working out his plan of redemption. Then God reveals himself to Moses. Israel is freed from Egypt. And out in the desert, a massive shift takes place. God took Moses up onto the mountain for 40 days. And while he was out there, he laid out detailed plans for a tabernacle that Moses was to build because God was returning to dwell among man. God tells Moses, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And he tells Moses to build the tabernacle and furniture exactly as he showed him. Now, tabernacle is just a fancy word for tent. So God's literally telling Moses, build me a tent. Why a tent? Because in a tent, God could move with the people wherever he led them. He also tells him that to build an ark, an ark of the covenant. Ark is a fancy word for chest, so it's just a chest. But at the top of the chest was what was known as the mercy seat. And God tells Moses, there I will meet you. God meets man at the mercy seat. God would dwell among his people, and God would meet man all inside the tabernacle. That was the purpose of the tabernacle. Let's fast forward to David. David wants to build God something bigger and better than a tent. You don't put God in a tent. You put God in a big house, right? But what does God do? God rebukes David's first plans. He says, you want to build me a house? I've been traveling around in this tent for years, and when have I ever asked for a house? God didn't want a permanent temple. God wanted the tabernacle to be temporary because God had a bigger plan. But ultimately, God tells David that he will allow a temple to be built, but that his son Solomon would do it. So Solomon begins building the temple, and as he starts building the temple, God comes to Solomon, and another major shift takes place. God tells Solomon that his presence in the temple will be there as long as they continue to obey. God's presence in the temple is now conditional. Solomon completes the temple. They bring the ark into the Holy of Holies, which is the innermost room where God's presence was. And when everyone left, 
the Holy of Holies after bringing the ark in. That's when God's presence filled the Holy of Holies and filled the temple. And again, God dwelt among man. God's presence was always tied to the ark because of the mercy seat. So after Solomon, we know what happens. Israel loses its way, the kingdom splits, and ultimately God allows Israel to be conquered by Babylon. And when the Babylonians come in, they destroy the temple, and they take all of the items of the temple, including the ark, and either destroy it or they take them with them to Babylon. After the exile, Israel is allowed to return to Jerusalem. They begin building another temple. God blesses them, but there's no ark. So the, God, the visible presence of God never comes back into this rebuilt temple. So finally, now, when we get back to John chapter 2, Jesus is going to a temple that is void of God's manifest presence. If you know me, you know two things about me. Number one, I left Buffalo Wild Wings. And number two, I can eat an inordinate amount of food when I put my mind to it. So on the night that Anna and I met, one of my friends decided to disclose to her one of my most cherished bachelor secrets. And uh, so I was 29 years old at the time, and I was kind of tired of being signal, single and tired of having Friday nights alone sometimes. So what I would do is I would take care of that by going and ordering Buffalo Wild Wings. I'm, I'm an emotional eater. I will, uh, I will let you know that right out of the gate. And uh, my secret, though, is I didn't want to order carryout for one on a Friday night because I just, I just didn't like that idea. So when I would call, I would call, and I would place an order for one person, and then I would place an order for another person. I would pick up my food, take it home, and I would eat all of it in all of my glory. So why did I do that? Why did I place an order for two people when I was really only one person? Because I was trying to portray a picture. I was trying to portray a picture, unfortunately in this case, of something that wasn't real. So let's talk about another picture. We've seen Jesus purge the temple, and we know now that the purpose of the temple was to be where God would dwell among man and where God would meet man. So back to the question of purging the temple. Why does Jesus do it? And why does he do it now after turning water into wine? And to answer that, we need to look at the picture of the temple. So let's look again at the text. In verse 18, after purging the temple, the Jews demand a sign. They say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? I mean, what they're really asking is, who do you think you are coming in here and saying these sorts of things? And what is Jesus' response? Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. So you're trying to tell us that this temple that took 46 years to build, you're going to build it all by yourself in three days, let alone you're telling us that we should destroy the temple? If you thought it was awkward for Jesus' disciples when he was creating pandemonium, imagine how they felt after he says this. In fact, verse 22 says that it wasn't until after the resurrection that the disciples believed what he said. Jesus walked into a temple, a temple void of God's visible presence, a bustling temple full of people at the peak of Jewish festivals, and says everything that this temple has represented, everything that this temple does, it's me. 
It's my body. It's a picture of me. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God dwelling among man. God meets man at the mercy seat. And in verse 20, Jesus says that after his body has been destroyed, he will raise it again in three days. Jesus' blood will be spilt as a holy sacrifice. And God will no longer meet man at a physical mercy seat, but he will now meet man at Jesus' sacrifice, which was a once-for-all sacrifice. Jesus is our mercy seat. The temple is all about God dwelling among man and God meeting man. God told Moses to follow his instructions exactly. Why exactly? Because everything in the temple was a picture of Christ. Be it an altar where the animals would be tied as they were slain, or be it that there was only one way into the innermost room, representing that Jesus is the only way to God. The temple was always a picture of Christ. Jesus purges the temple because the purpose of the temple was to always be a picture of Christ. He claims his identity as the one to which the temple pointed. He does it now because right after turning water to wine and pointing to a future wedding, the next step in a Jewish wedding was then to bring the bride into the Father's house, which is why he does that. Everything that the Old Testament prophesied about Jesus' work was starting into motion. Jesus' revelation through signs and wonders has begun. And at this point, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, he's already got the cross in mind. So much so that the words he says in verse 19 are the very words used against him in his trial before the Sanhedrin. He knows his body will be destroyed and that in three days he will raise it up. And when his work on the cross is complete, everything changes. At the Last Supper, Peter asks Jesus if he can go with him. But Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot follow, because he knew that Peter couldn't go to the cross. That was something only Jesus could do. And what about after the cross? Right after Jesus tells Peter he can't go with him, he says, you will follow later. Peter had a longing to be with Jesus. And Jesus recognized that longing, but he points it forward to something bigger, to something better. He points it to a reality in a future that far exceeds anything we can have here on this earth. Jesus continues on with Peter and says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? When a Jewish man was betrothed to Mary, they would sign the wedding contract and then he would leave. And what did the man do? For a year, he would go prepare a place for his bride. Jesus' work on the cross, preparing a place for us, is giving us a place to be in his Father's home. Revelation 21:22 says that there will be no temple in the new Jerusalem because God the Father and Jesus himself will be the temple. They will dwell with all of their glory in the new heaven and new earth. It will be on full display. And we will no longer have to meet God at a temple because everything that Jesus did will have accomplished the work that we needed. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, Jesus will bring his bride, the church, into his Father's house to live forever. In 1992, 
After living on Half Moon Lake for 22 years, Paul and Alberta Anderson decided that it was time to sell the house, to move back to the Twin Cities where they could be closer to family and get the assistance that they needed. So in the summer of 2017, Paul and Anna Anderson decided that after not having been to Half Moon Lake for 25 years, it was time to go back. Anna magically found a house for rent three doors down from where my grandparents used to live. It was actually a house that belonged to one of my grandmother's friends, and it was a house that my grandmother would have been in on a weekly basis for either coffee or tea or cake or whatever. The lady who lived next door to the house that we stayed in knew my grandparents, and she was telling us stories about them, stories that we had never heard. My grandparents' home was still there. It had been updated, new siding. The bunkhouse had been enlarged, and the garage had moved from one side to where the shed used to be, but it was as if no time had passed. The lily pads right off the end of the dock that I used to avoid as a kid were still right there. The stairs up into the house where my grandmother would meet us were still right there, and there were still these big windows looking out over the lake to take in the sunsets. We had a wonderful week with the water, all of our, I mean, our kids were playing in the water. My parents were with us. It was a great time. We reminisced on so many different experiences. And when you're up there, all these experiences that just get lost in the caverns of your mind start to come back. But like vacations do, the week came to an end. We packed our stuff up, drove by my grandparents' house one last time, and went down the road towards the boat launch and eventually out to the highway. And as we drove, by the boat launch, I told Dan, I said, I gotta stop one more time. So we, we parked the cars and Owen runs out, runs straight to the end of the dock. He's looking at all the fish and the rocks at the bottom of the crystal clear water. My parents walk arm in arm out to the other side of the dock and Anna and I make our way down to the dock. And as Anna and I are standing there looking out at the water, just this well of emotion hit me and I just fell apart and wept. I wept like a baby. It was this weird convergence of emotions, seeing my boy play and do all the very same things that I did when I was a kid, and then watching my boy and recognizing that this is exactly what my dad saw when I was a boy, and then looking at my dad and recognizing that my dad is now playing the role of my grandfather. And after a lot of hugs and tears, we got back in the car and we drove down the road, and I told Anna that it said as it felt like as we were leaving that I was having to say goodbye to my grandparents all over again. There was still this longing to be with them. My grandparents were gone, and all that we had left were these symbolic reminders. The story of the temple isn't a story that begins with a person and ends with symbolic reminders. The story of the temple is a story that begins with symbolic reminders and ends with a person. It's a story that began with signs that God gave Moses in the design of a tabernacle that pointed to Christ. It's a story that reaches its climax as Jesus is on the cross and his resurrection three days later. And it's a story that doesn't end at the resurrection. It's a story that will continue on into eternity as Jesus brings his bride, the church, into his father's house to live forever. Let's pray. Father, your plan of redemption has been at work since the dawn of time. 
even when we as your people fell away from you, you continued to reach out to come and dwell among us, to provide us a way to meet you. You gave man a temple that was ultimately a picture of something so much greater, your son Jesus. You dwelled among us in the person of Jesus, and through the work of Jesus, we can long for a day when we will dwell in your house forever. Give us the grace to live today in light of eternity. Amen. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.